through a series um, as a church that has been, um, I think it's one of our favorite series that we've done in the recent past, um, not because it was deeper than any of the other ones or anything else, but because it was, it was really trying to address issues that, it's, that as Christians, oftentimes, instead of running towards an answer, we run away. Um, the whole series, it's complicated. The point of it was to try to tackle issues that as Christians, we either misunderstand we misspeak about, or we're just misunderstood. If we, even when we say the right thing, we're misunderstood because we just can't articulate it. Um, and it was just one of the most phenomenal things to watch you as a church engaging these, the subject matter and, and even disagreeing with the subject matter in an amazing way. That was the miracle. There was like Christians who disagreed, and they walked away, and they were okay with each other. It's phenomenal. And it was so cool to watch as, as more and more people were coming back to the text and saying, what, is, what does God say? I really want to know what God says about this. And really, really wrestling with each one of the issues that we were engaging on. And we're going to wrap up the series this weekend. And we're looking at uh, questions that people ask, hard questions that people ask of God or of the Bible. Things that they've read or heard about that Scripture teaches that they would say, man, I, I don't know if I can be all in on this God or your holy book because of what I've heard or read or in your scriptures. And uh, I don't know if you've ever, you know, my guess is you've said the phrase, that's a great question, right? And usually you say that for three, one of three reasons. Like if, if maybe you're in an argument with a spouse or you're maybe hanging out with some friends or you're even in a job interview when you would say these things. And the first way you would say it is because you're like, that's a great question, and you're thinking, because I got a great answer for this question. I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to let you have it right now. This, I was waiting for you to ask me that question, right? Uh, like, I'm going to shine in this interview because you finally asked the question. I was hoping that's one reason. The other one, especially in a job interview or in, a, in an argument with a spouse, you'd be like, that's a great question. And really, you're just using the word time to let your mind think because you're like, that's such a great question. I don't really know what I'm going to say right now, right? <laughs> and you've been there, and you're like, that really is a good question. I'm not sure what, you know, I'm I'm thinking about it as I speak. The third way is you're just basically admitting, like, that's a fair question. You know, that's a smart observation. Like, that's a, like, that's a, that's a good, solid question. And uh, basically, a little bit of all three of those reasons is what, why we kind of chose. There's lots of questions that people have that uh, as they become a Christian or before they become a Christian, they're, they're just kind of like, I, I got I to gotta wrestle with these issues. And so we chose three from many. And uh, our hope is that a little bit of all three, these are hard questions. And there's no like one perfect Bible verse, really simple, easy answer. We hope that like the rest of the series, these will be thought-provoking and conversation starting for you and your small groups and with your families. Um, we really hope that uh, not only are they smart questions that, uh, you know, we, we just want to say, hey, that's, that's, that's a legitimate concern. You know, that's a, a good observation. That's a fair question. But also, we're glad that these questions come up because our goal is that as we kind of dive into these three topics that you will either feel more ready to put your faith in Jesus— if, that, if some of these are the hurdles that you've had and just kind of the, the hang-ups that you've had to finally put, give in your life to God, or that you'd feel more equipped to help someone else put their faith in Jesus. Because these are legitimate questions, but we're so glad that you asked because we think we're better for going through them. So we're going to dive in. If you grab notes in the back, uh, we kind of just spelled out some of the, the questions and the problem, and then we gave you some room uh, to write some thoughts down as we go. So question number one that we're going to hit today is, why does God seem like a genocidal monster, especially in the Old Testament? Maybe you've thought this, or maybe someone's asked you, or if you've never cons you know, considered this, uh, here's the problem. The Old Testament contains sections 
where God judges entire populations of people, wiping them completely from uh, wiping them completely out, men, women, and children, most notably in the account of the flood and uh, the conquest of the promised land, Canaan, with Joshua leading the Israelites. So that's a good question. It's a great question, and it's honestly, if you've, if you've been like, man, I'm all in for Jesus, and then you read the Old Testament, you're like, whoa, who is this that I'm all in for? Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Um, but we have a couple of handicaps uh, coming to the text right off the bat, and one of them is that the Bible's very clear that we don't know the mind of God. The other thing that we don't have is the cultural understanding. Have you ever um, watched a movie from, if you're especially like if you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s or older, have you watched any movies from your upbringing or TV shows and went, whoa, I can't believe that was okay. Did you hear what they just said? And then you can't, re you can't believe that you actually didn't even flinch when it first came out. You're like, that's kind of messed up that they used that word, that they actually said that. And I didn't even notice it at the time. And that, that's, that's like 30 years of difference, of, of looking at the culture of 30 years ago versus today and recognizing my 21st century, 2020 sensibilities allow me to look back on the 1980s and 90s and go, wow, there's some things that people were okay with that were probably a little bit sketchy, a little bit messed up, or at least I, we didn't understand then what we understand now. Now think about that from 30 years to 6,000. You think that there's possibility that we would look back on a culture 6,000 years ago and go, okay, there's things that I just can't relate to or understand that was normative at that time. When you're coming into the Old Testament, you're coming into an ancient world that is barbaric, that is uh, war-torn, and that is brutal. And starting in any nation, there's brutality. God is always one who's coming in to the culture at hand and working with what he has. And what he's working with at that point is a very brutalized culture. The, one of the first things that we need to understand is that when you see, especially with Joshua coming into Canaan, you don't see Joshua coming in and like bulldozing Braidwood. Or like coming into town and like, all right, guys, let's go ahead and let's kill every single person in Shanahan, men, women, and children, and their cats. Go. We don't see this situation where it's just like this blitzing a community, a civic community center where you've got a kindergarten over here and an old folks over here. What you have when you have Jericho and Ai and some of these other towns that you hear described in the Old Testament are military outposts. And not thousands upon thousands, much smaller population of people, like incredibly small. It's, it's, it's filled with army and it's filled with soldiers. There are women and children and animals there, certainly, but the pre predominant amount of human beings in this fortification are soldiers who outgun, outman, outstrategize, and outfortify the Hebrews that are coming in. The fact that you have Hebrews taking conquest of Canaan is kind of similar to saying, we're going to go ahead and fight the Taliban, and there's this awesome preschool class we're going to send on over to do it. And expect that the preschoolers are going to win. And if the preschoolers actually go over and win, people would say, this is nothing short of a miracle, which was the takeaway of the time in the ancient world with the conquest of Canaan. They shouldn't have won, and they did. Uh, but not only that, not only were they thinking we need to think military compound, uh, compounds, not houses and, and cities as, it, as we think of them right now, but we have to think it through the lens of God's patience. Um, God brings Abraham to that area, that, and he says, this is your land. This is the land that the, my nation is going to start, the nation that's going to be an epicenter of my love for the whole world, for people to see what's going to happen here. This is where it's going to be. And Abraham's like, sweet, right now? And he's like, no. Ten years? Uh-uh. Four hundred years. From now, this is what, what your descendants are going to have a chance to take, take possession of this land. It's like, why? And he, and he gives two reasons. The second reason pertains to why 
then. The second reason is because of the fact that he was going to allow the sin of the Amorites to get to a point um, before he would ultimately cleanse the land, wipe the, the, the land clean of the toxicity and the brutal, murderous, rapist toxicity of the land. Because again, God was preserving his people for, for future flourishing. The interesting thing about that is that that's 400 years of God's patience. God gives a people group 400 years to turn to him, to turn away from the murderous, rapist, idolatrous ways that would pollute and destroy his plan if, if, it, if that uh, polluted his people. He gives them 400 years of patience. Now, if you had your family, if you had your family and they were surrounded by murderous, rapist people that are going to do something that was going to be absolutely detrimental to the future of your family, how long do you operate without acting? How long do you and decide not to engage the threat that is right there before you? How long do you have patience for people who are a threat like that to your kids? For me, or for maybe for you, maybe it'd be four seconds of patience. Scripture shows us that God has 400 years of patience that he allows for. And so the, the, the conquest of, of Canaan is a picture of God's patience. But again, as I said before, it's his protection. He is protecting his kids and his people because his number one pri priority is to protect the Hebrew people. Not because they deserve it, you read the Old Testament, you realize that they don't. He's protecting them because the hope of the whole world is going to come from this people group. And he is going to buffer everything he can to make sure that that hope of the future, ultimately that Jesus was going to be born, would be protected. The future of human flourishing was going to come from this group, the Son of God himself. And so that was something that he had to make sure everything, every type of enemy was moved out, even when that enemy was within the Hebrew people. Now, God's plan in all this is, is important for us to understand that that's not God's MO going forward. When you have the, the flood with, with Noah, at the end of it, God says, I'm never, ever going to do that again. I'm never going to flood the earth in judgment like that ever, ever again. When you see um, the, the conquest of Canaan, you see this as a prescription. This is a one-and-done move. This isn't something that God says, okay, now, whenever community that you go to, go into the next community and wipe them out. That's never the MO or the protocol that God calls us. The plan is for that to be a time-specific reality. That's why it's inappropriate for modern-day Christians to rip off and lift lyrics of Old Testament battle and impose it upon modern-day battles as if God is calling us to do what he was calling the Hebrews to do in the conquest of Canaan. We understand that, the, that God's plan shifts, because, not only shifts, but, but that, that was for them at that time, but it was not God's plan overall because of Jesus. Jesus comes in and he says this, You've heard it said, love your, and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, God's plan was not to start a nation because under the new covenant through Jesus, we were already his nation. We didn't need land for that. We were already his nation. He wasn't calling us to wipe out an enemy. He was calling us to go and love our enemies. And so the thing that we see in Jesus, this phenomenal uh, reality, is that what we see in the Old Testament is a timestamp of one particular mission God had, not something that was the MO or character of God throughout, of being this wiping out type of individual. And so we want to ask, like, you know, here's the problem, here's some of the answer. What's the takeaway? So, like, what's the so what for us today? And um, the first is that, and we've said this before, we've said this all through this series, that if 
the best way to get a view of God is to see Jesus. You know, Jesus was literally God in a bod. He's the one, he's the best way you can get to know. He hung out with people, he had meals with people, and, uh, and he would point to himself and say, if you want to see God, look at me. If you want to know how God, you know, feels, watch me. And, um, and so we can look at how God has operated with his people, with all different generations of, of people. But Jesus says the best way to, to really view who God is and, and all of his character, and God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The best view and image and knowable piece of that is the way Jesus lived and talked and acted when he walked the earth. And um, so if you, if you ever come against anything in Scripture where you're like, oh, man, that's hard to stomach, that's hard to swallow, we can try to view that through the lens of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And when he says to love your enemies, totally different than a, a kind of one-time specific era thing that we saw. Um, the other part that plays into that is that we need to be able to trust that God knows best. If you think about, uh, we see in, in, in these uh, accounts where God calls his people to go in and have this complete totality of, of victory and domination. Uh, I think there was a piece of them that it was like, eh, really? That's pretty, that's pretty complete. There was times where God said, don't even take their, their, their jewelry, their riches, their plunder. Uh, burn it, get rid of it, don't even keep it. And, and there were some people that would say, that seems wasteful. We'd be bad stewards. And so they keep it, and they're punished by God for that. There's other times where they save a king they shouldn't have, or, or, or some of the people that, they, that God said, don't let them be. And then later on, generations later, that, that people group comes back to, to, to bite them. Mm-hmm. And God, I think, is saying, oh, I, I, I didn't want that for you. I, I tried to give you the, the, the full instructions to carry out. And I think even for them, there was times where they're like, we don't quite understand what God is up to or, or why he would give us these specific commands. If you've ever had a time where you feel like God is calling you to do something and it's difficult or it's, it's uncomfortable, that you could say, you know what? I believe that God is God. He is sovereign. He knows best, so I'm going to walk with him in this, even though I don't quite understand him. You know, if, if, if you could understand God completely and all of his reasons and all of his personality, he'd be a really puny God, Right? Like, I don't want to worship a God that I totally understand. I, 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 I wish that I understand him better. I, I, we, and, and he lets us continue to grow in our understanding of him. But we will never completely see him for all that he is. Because he's God. And, and we're not. And, and on some level, I'm okay with the fact that I can trust that he knows better than me because he's God. And if, if you've ever felt like God called you to walk through something that's just difficult to walk through, relationally or physically or whatever, that you're just like, man, why does God have this for me right now? That you could say, you know what, I don't quite get it, but I can still trust that God knows best. I think that's one of the, one of the takeaways from yeah. uh, how we can see that. Yeah, Jesus was, to- uh, he, and like you said, he, he was totally the corrective lenses of, of the Old Testament. Because even the first century Hebrew people didn't completely understand the mind of God. And Jesus was constantly correcting them and saying, look, you need to understand it. I'm God. I'm going to go ahead and give you the accurate interpretation on what you misunderstood in our history, in our past. If you want someone who is just a phenomenal, or a book, a good resource that's a great takeaway um, for subjects like this, like The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, and The Hope of Holy War, it's a phenomenal book called The Skeletons in God's Closet, things that normally push people away from God, specifically with regard to the Old Testament, but some New Testament things as well, and Joshua uh, Butler is a phenomenal guy to attack that. All right, we're going to move to number two, next question of the day. Uh, Here's the question. Doesn't the Bible condone racism and slavery, okay? And if, if that's like, oh, I had that question, or maybe you never thought of it, here's kind of where the problem comes from. The Bible never actually 
condemns slavery and seems to almost make provision for it to happen. If, if you read scripture, it mentions slavery uh, a lot of different times in different ways. And, and um, unfortunately, we don't have a verse. There's no like, thou shalt not own slaves or, or something like that. Or hey, don't be a racist, John 7, 17. That'd be a good one. Yeah, it would be great. Yeah. That's the problem. So I think uh, with slavery, if you, especially in the Old Testament, you see, and through the New Testament, you hear about that, that there was slavery. And not all things that are written and recorded in Scripture are prescribed as good. You know, there's plenty of awful things that happen in Scripture because it's a historical, you know, telling of a story, and that doesn't mean that it was all, all right and good. And uh, with slavery, the other thing is, um, I think that as modern-day Americans, when we hear slavery, we picture, like, colonial, like, you know, new America, European kind of slavery, which was this dehumanizing, degrading view of you are not even really people and we'll, right. and we'll, we'll mistreat you this way. And that's really not the image that we get in uh, most of ancient slavery, which was uh, almost worldwide spread as, as, as you read history. And um, it was mostly you would become a slave for a certain period of time for a specific reason because of crime that you punished or because of debt that you couldn't pay, like the, the idea of indentured servanthood. And, and most people that were slaves wouldn't be slaves forever. It was for a certain period of time they would work off their debt or because of prisoners of war. Um, and then we see, I think it's neat to realize, so we have an image of slavery similar to what we imagine where it's mistreating of people and, and it bothers God. So God leads the Israelites to Egypt and it's awesome for a while until they get a new pharaoh, and he does, he's scared of them, and he makes them their slaves. And it's in this, like, you're, you're not actually humans. We mistreat you, degrade you kind of slavery. And the people cry out, and the Bible says that uh, their cries reached God's throne in heaven, and he was concerned for them. And he said, I will raise up a rescuer. And he sends Moses, and he does the plagues, and he leads them out because he's not okay with that kind of slavery. And then uh, as the whole world is practicing their versions of slavery, God is kind of uh, giving instructions to his people as if they have prisoners of war or, or people that uh, are become slaves for a certain time for certain reasons. He actually, in his law to them, gives them instructions on how to treat their slaves well. Mm -hmm. That probably different than anybody else, any other nation in the world at the time, he's saying, no, they have rights. They are people. They have worth and dignity. And he's actually telling them how to treat their slaves well. So slavery is a little bit different, usually, in what we see, especially with the nation of Israel, than what we think of now. Uh, and we see that God is commanding his people to treat slaves uh, as people better than probably anyone else around. And you see that in the Old Testament, but you see it also actually take it to the next level in the New. Um, Jesus impacts everything, because again, now you finally have uh, God walking around, God showing us exactly what it looks like to love, which is always elevating the humanity of people because they're created in the image of God. Um, you have uh, the effect of Jesus' work like in Paul. You have Paul who, who writes things like this, and I totally typoed the verse, but it says this, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, for, nor is there male nor female, or you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is absolutely countercultural information, because what it's saying here is, no, even though you, we have this caste system of different worth that we place upon people, People from our country are the ones who are the most important. Or people that are our color are the most important. He says, no. Nah. In Jesus, it is level playing field. We are all equal. It's, it's, it's equality. And so Paul does stuff that, again, Christians have zero political pull in the first century. It's not like they can vote out slavery. You know, so, so that's not done. But you see what God does is God comes in and cuts the legs out from slavery. He guts it from within 
and through the work of Paul. Paul comes in and says, he writes slaves, writes slaves, and he says to them, I'm writing you, people who are powerless, they have people who are, are under the oppression of a master, and he says, I am giving you the divine power of actually using your work that is just oppressed work. I've got to do this. I've got to do this because I've got a master. And instead of interpreting it simply that way, to actually having the power put back in your hands to say, I'm going to do this instead of for this guy, I'm going to do this as ministry. I'm going to do my everyday job as if it's ministry, not to this guy, but to God. Is that going to impact him? Yup, it is going to. And so all of a sudden the slave is called to be someone who's actually ministering to by a slave owner. And then he writes the slave owners. And he says stuff to them like, okay, so you have slaves. Here's the deal. If you're a Christian, treat your slaves the way you would treat a brother or a sister. Like an immediate family member. What would you do with them? Or, or, or another brother or sister in Christ. That's how you treat this slave. Or better yet, treat your slave the way that you would treat me. When I come over to your house, you throw a party. Treat your slave that way when he comes into the door. Because he is someone that God looks at as equal dignity, equal worth. Um, the, the amazing thing that we see this is that, that um, the, the, and this is within the takeaway, that you can't, it's not the Bible that, it, that is the, the source for racism or, or, or the source for, for slavery, just the opposite. And we know that because when Christianity makes its way in, all of a sudden, slavery in its form, even in the ancient world, starts to dissipate until a certain era. And this is what's, what's absolutely an indictment on, on the church. After the Reformation, we have God's Word. People, for the first time, have, have a copy of God's Word they can walk around with, they can read, they understand God's perspective. After the Reformation, they've got this. And that's right around the time that we see slavery take its most dark and dehumanizing steps. And so people are either, owning, as Christians, owning slaves in ignorance to what the Bible says. Or worse yet, they see what the Bible says and they're looking the other way. Way. And we know that's the case, at least in part, because of the slave Bible. In the 1800s, a, 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 a copy of the Bible was published in England and then was, was exported to the West Indies colonies and then ultimately to America that gave slaves a copy of the Bible that they could read and be close to God. Only one difference. They cut out 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament. Anything that they deemed would showcase the freedom one has in Christ or the freedom and, and worth that one has as a child of God, no matter what your race is, no matter what your color is, that you're all created in God's image, they eradicated it and they ripped it right out of Scripture, and they gave them that copy of something that was not God's Word. The only way that you can use the Bible to promote slavery or racism is if you take the Bible out of it, and you just rip it to shreds and make it into a human document that's incomplete. That's the only way. As Christians, what we need to say is, as people of God's word, any type of dehumanization is wrong. This is why, why Christians were at the front of elevating the role of women, because they looked at how Jesus did that. How women, uh, how humans that were Christians um, elevated the role of children, because they saw that's what Jesus did. And so through the civil rights era, it was God's word that was quoted to promote the civil rights movement. Any kind of racial supremacy is evil. Evil. Any kind of looking down on someone, another race other than yours as, as lower or diminished is absolutely evil because it's not just an affront to that race. It's a affront to the creator of those races who created those races on purpose as a reflection of his beauty and artistry. That's the takeaway for that.
So we got one left, and uh, we saved it for last because we figured it was an easy one to get through. We only Take have a note. couple yeah. minutes, so we can. This is one that probably we've all we've all wondered, we've all felt, uh, and you may, probably most of us have had someone ask us about this if they knew you were a Christian. So uh, the third one is this: If God is a good God, why does He allow suffering? You've right. felt this, you've wondered this. Your the easy question. Asked, yeah. This will take no time at all. Okay. Okay. Here's the problem. The Bible depicts God as all-loving and all-powerful. Wouldn't it be logical, then, to assume that in light of ongoing existence of suffering, that either God is loving but not really powerful, or he is powerful but not particularly loving? Okay. And so the answer to that actually um, is going to be different for a Christian than if you're not a Christian. Um, Let's start actually with, with the question of, where does suffering come from or why does suffering exist if you have already come to the conclusion for whatever reason that there is no god there's no god but suffering is a reality and you're you're a a smart observer and so you realize that the resources that you have to come up with an answer are going to be far delinquent and diminished than, than that of a christian and this is why if everything has come about by random randomness just complete random undirected mutations and collisions then you and i are here by a lucky accident but it's just an accident i mean there there is no meaning in life we just we are just here and one day we won't be and so if you're suffering well that that, that's sad because you have some type of chemical reaction that's sad but there's no meaning behind it there's no reason behind it you've so so you lost her so what i mean that there's there's no there's There's no reason why you shouldn't have lost that person. There's no reason that that person shouldn't have died. It is just what it is. And so there is no reason to have any type of solace in suffering. As a Christian, I believe that Christianity affords us, people who are followers of Jesus, with the best answer of the source of suffering, the best way to go through suffering, and and the best way to understand, is my suffering going to last forever? And and so to answer that question, why would a good God allow suffering, it really starts back with the source of suffering. A good God allows suffering for his ultimate glory because his ultimate glory was to include creating humanity, not as robots, but with the ability to have a relationship. Whenever you open up uh, a scenario where you have the chance to have a relationship, you are opening up the chance to be rejected, betrayed, and suffer. If you've been through, if you've had any type of friendship or relationship, you know that suffering has come alongside that, no matter how good it is. And so God creates humanity not as people who are automatic, just robotic individuals, but people who could respond to him or choose to walk away. The walking away not, wasn't just like a breakup between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. It was a breakup with the very fibers of our creation itself. The disconnect was not just between us and a person. It was a, the person who was our creator. And so it was a, a divorce of every fiber in our body and creation and set the shockwave that we are now in a broken world that has expiration dates. Everything that's good will come to an end. No matter what it is, your job experience, the fun that you're having, the relationship you have, everything that's good is going to come to an end at some point. And that is the rhythm of life. That's where suffering comes from. That may not be a happy source, but it's an honest source. But as Christians, we actually have the best rationale, a way to go through suffering. And it actually comes from Jesus' words before he goes through ultimate suffering. He says this, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have what? Okay, so God... Jesus is telling us things that we actually have a capacity to have a, a rudder in, in a, 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 just a shaky ship to get through life so we can have peace. In this world, you will have what? Okay, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
in this, he gives us two handles on how to go through the suffering we're going through right now. And the first is this, that as a Christian, you're able to go through suffering better because you're not as blindsided. This is where karma totally disappoints us, okay? Um, I talk with people all the time like, oh man, my karma. And, and they're not even like Indian. I mean, they're not, they're not even from like the Middle East or they're not even from Asia. We're like karma, like, like they've adopted karma as this, this, this telling reality. And, and basically karma says this, if you do bad, you should expect. If you do good, you should expect, which is great. Except if you're like, dude, I am like up in my karma. I'm like forgiving people. I'm nice to my, my in-laws. I, I'm, I'm decent with my kids. I'm not a jerk on the road most of the time. And like, bam, I'm making right choices after right choice after right choice. And then the diagnosis happens. And then the breakup happens. And then not just that, all these bad things happen. They all start happening at once. Why is this that I'm doing good and I'm receiving bad? Karma is a disappointment. Because karma is a joke. That's not how things work. And the problem is that as Christians, we import karma into our faith. And what we do is this. If I obey God, he's going to protect me from suffering. If I obey God and I'm a good Christian, I'm making the right decisions, I'm reading my Bible, I started going to church again, I'm not going to get a flat tire. I'm not going to get broken up with. I'm not going to get let go from work. And that's not how it works. Where is that promise to you in Scripture? Because what Jesus promises us is this. In this world, what? You will have trouble. That's the promise. Your promise is you will suffer. So, as a Christian, even though it's an unwelcomed reality, it's a reality that we can embrace without denial. I can embrace the fact that suffering is going to happen. If you're not going through suffering right now, just wait. Because as long as you're breathing, that's coming for you. When it does, as a Christian, however, you don't have to be shocked when the diagnosis comes through, when the breakup happens, when you're betrayed. You're not shocked because this is a broken world that we live in. You don't have to ask, what did I do to deserve this? You live in a broken world where Jesus promises you in this world, in this world you will have trouble. But the second part of it is amazing. Not only can you not be as shocked, you're not alone. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. In other words, adjust your perspective because it's not all bad news even though you're going to get suffering after suffering after suffering i have overcome the suffering that you're going to go through right now so it's not your final reality it's not your ultimate truth those are the two handles that we get a chance to actually go through suffering that gives us an understanding of how we can then know what it's going to happen with it so we want to kind of wrap up with some verses that we both just absolutely love from romans chapter 8 where Paul, who suffered greatly, he wrote like a chapter on all the horrible things that happened to him. And it makes you feel better about yourself when you read it. Mm -hmm. uh, he talks about suffering. So Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says this, I consider that our present sufferings, he doesn't deny them, he, he you know, he, he's, uh, he gets it. Uh, our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And what he's saying is, uh, maybe you get a new girlfriend or a new job or, 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 you know, things turn around here on earth. But even if they don't, and you might suffer greatly for a long period of time, um, one day we'll be at home with the Father in a perfect place for eternity with glorified bodies. And Paul says we will look back no matter how great our suffering is, and we will say it's not, it, it doesn't even compare to the future glory that is coming to us as believers, uh, which gives us great comfort that when you suffer, um, God is not surprised. 
You know, that, you can make that to say, oh, God, what, what a horrible God that he wouldn't keep that from me. But what, you can actually, I feel a lot better that he says, I'm not, you know, I'm aware of your suffering. I'm actually okay with your suffering because he says, I'm actually at work in your suffering. Later in the chapter, Paul says this, we know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That God is at work in all situations, on your best day and on your worst day, in good seasons and in dark seasons. That God says, I will use this to bring about good in you and through you, especially if you stick it out with me. I think one of the, the, the answers is why would God even allow suffering is because he gets so much more glory when you have faith when it's hard than when you have faith and it's easy. And that we grow through suffering. And that our witness is stronger through suffering. And Paul says, God is at work in all things. And if God's okay with it, then I can be okay with it. I think as a Christian, we have this answer for uh, 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 where, where suffering comes from and, and sin and why it happens to us. And it doesn't make us feel better. It doesn't make it easy. But we can say, okay, I don't have to worry about uh, if God loves me or if God will take care of me or if this will end because God has promised that I am with you always. Uh, it will have an end. It won't even compare to what you're going through right now. And then Paul goes on. He goes, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he may be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those who he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That when you put your faith in Jesus, he says, I, you are, you know, I had a professor that said, salvation is difficult to explain, but he would say, it's like not yet, but already happened, right? Like, you're saved in the moment. Your ticket to heaven is punched. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus comes into your heart. The Holy Spirit indwells you, and it's, 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 it's once and for all. But at the same time, there's this process of you becoming more and more like the image of his son. And one day, you will be glorified in heaven, home with the Father for eternity. This is what has been promised to all who follow God, regardless of our darkest and darkest of times. Many of you have just gotten through, like, serious, serious sickness, right? If, if that's you, just cough. No, we, 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 like, we've gone through, like, awful. It's been really bad. In fact, I'm surprised that there's so many people here today because of that. Um, but when you're in the midst of being sick, or you're, you've just, you're recovering from a surgery, the one thing that's going through your mind is, man, is this going to be forever? Am I going to feel like this forever? If you've just been broken up with or some tragedy has happened to your family, you've experienced a loss, am I going to feel this way forever? And the promise of Scripture is no. In fact, you have the promise that whatever is causing your suffering, you don't have to look at it and say, it's all good. It's, it's, it's fantastic. In fact, I'm happy about it. No. You can actually look at it and say, this is bad. This is the effect of sin. And know that Jesus is right alongside you because Jesus hurt. Jesus got angry. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus cried. And he is someone who's walking alongside you promising that not only am I going to one day make all things new and you're going to be eternity, but I'm going to take the stuff, the wrong evil things that are causing your suffering, and I'm actually going to bend it into something that will be not just for my glory, for yours. You have that promise. And so the takeaway for us is this. How could a good God allow suffering? The answer is communion. The answer is the Lord's table. The reality of what we have in communion is the answer to suffering. Because what it says is we have a good God who not only allowed suffering by way of opening up the world for love, but he did the one and only thing necessary to be able to end it. 
he allows us, whenever we take this Lord's Supper, to come as suffering individuals, suffering because of our own choices and suffering because of the choices of others and suffering because of the broken world that we live in that has broken us down and our bodies down. We have the chance to take all the suffering and bring it to the feet of our Savior, who is described in Scripture as the suffering servant. He is here to serve you. Communion is not something you bring to God. It's not an indication of how holy or special you are or how your week has gone. It's the suffering coming before the Savior, who is the only one who can make us whole. You're being fed by the Savior in a way of being reminded that it is his provision of his body and his blood that, it, that is our fulfillment. No matter what pain has, has been caused in your past because of your sin or the sin of this world, he spoke a more pronounced word over it in his sacrifice on the cross. That's why we celebrate this as Christians. We're going to wrap up this morning uh, by taking communion together, which is an awesome way for the church to celebrate who Jesus is, what he's accomplished for us, what he offers to us together, and to remember what Jesus suffered so that he could offer us eternity in heaven. And um, we believe that communion is for believers in Jesus. You don't have to be a member of this church to take communion with us. It doesn't make you a member of this church, um, but we do believe that it is something that has, uh, is given and offered to people who have put their faith in Jesus. And I just want to say, if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, it's really as simple as just admitting that you are a, a sinner and you cannot save yourself. That Jesus is the one and only Savior and his death and resurrection offers uh, forgiveness for your sins and eternity. That you put your faith in him and trust him to forgive you of your sins and, and um, to be your Lord and your Savior. And when you do that, if you do that this morning in your heart, then you are saved. You are his. And I would love it if, if maybe one of these questions that we've talked about is, is one of your hurdles. That you just were, uh, you know, you've, you've hung out with us for a while. You, you've considered following Jesus. But some of these things about I can't believe the suffering that I felt or my loved ones have felt. Or, or I just have heard some things about your God that I just couldn't worship. And, and maybe you haven't. We didn't answer those questions completely. But enough that you can say, you know what, I can trust in this Jesus. And I can, I can work out my belief as I go that if you put your faith in Jesus for the first time this morning, I want to invite you to celebrate your very first communion with us right here, right now. It's for all believers. If you've been a believer for 10 seconds or 10 decades, this is for you.